You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Some words we use more frequently than others. They are a common part of our vocabulary, and yet a liability arises for us in the words we use most frequently. Because it's the words we use most frequently that we spend the least amount of time often considering their meaning. We just know what they are. They're a part of our vocabulary. We take them for granted. The words I use every day, I'm probably not spending a lot of time looking them up in the dictionary or Googling them to see how they're used in culture today. It's those words that I'm less familiar with that I don't use often. Those are the ones I look up. The ones I use frequently, I just take for granted. I know what that means. You know what it means. We use it that way. One of the words we use frequently in church that we never or rarely think is subject to that liability, but I want to suggest today that it is, is the word grace. We talk a lot about grace, don't we? We should talk a lot about grace. The Bible talks a lot about grace. The New Testament talks about grace. It talks about the fullness of grace. It talks about grace upon grace. We get to the letters of Paul. We hear about the abundance of grace. Not just the abundance, but the super abundance of grace. Again and again and again through the Scriptures, we are told grace, 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 grace. And in the Wesleyan tradition, we're big fans of grace. And we talk a lot about it in our specific ways. Perhaps you've already started thinking. Some of these who've been through certain Bible studies may be thinking, I've heard about prevenient grace or justifying grace or sanctifying grace. There's these different kinds of things going on there. and We use this language a lot. But I find when I pause and invite people to do, let's do a little thought experiment. Just take one sentence and tell me what grace is. And maybe we remember one of those acronym things from youth group or something like that. But I find we often struggle to take this word that we use at least every Sunday, if not every day, and just put it into a one-sentence definition. Grace is fill in the blank. So we do well to pause We're going to pause for three Sundays today and the next two weeks and look at some different texts in the Bible that talk about grace. And we're going to try as faithfully as we can, we're going to try as faithfully as we are able to set some of those assumptions on the side and try to get clear about how Scripture talks about this frequent word, this common theme that we desperately need. Now when we're talking about grace, one possible area of concern that was really brought to my attention several years ago, I've thought about it a great deal since, but I remember the first time I I heard a preacher preach about this, and 
I've seen since then some articles and things on it that we often talk about grace like it's this thing distinct from God. Like you got God, and God's got grace, and sometimes he gives it to us. Right? Like, like maybe if it's your birthday, I'll go to the store and get a thing or order something these days on the internet and get it and wrap it up and give it to you as a gift. I'm not the thing, but I got the thing, and now you have the thing. And sometimes when we pray, we kind of pray like grace is a thing like that. Like, God, I need grace in this moment. Ever pray like that? God, give me more grace in my relationship with this person, with my boss. <laughs> amen? Staff says amen. It's like, do we envision that like God's in heaven and He's got this room somewhere and the room has a lot of shelves in it and on the shelves are these boxes and in the boxes there's a lot of grace. And then we pray and we say, God, we need some grace because this thing is happening in my life. So God gets up off of his throne in heaven and goes into this room and gets one of those boxes out off the shelf and, shelf and gets some grace out and brings it over to us and says, Here, here's some grace for you. And I've seen this again and again and again over the years. We kind of talk about it that way, like it's this thing. We almost put God to the side and just focus on grace. Like it's this thing we can carry around in a bucket or put in our pocket or keep on a shelf in our house until we need it. And I'm good. I'm just kind of going along, going through my life, doing what I do, clocking in, clocking out, taking care of the kids, cooking meals, and then something happens and I go to the grace repository and get some and bring it back and apply it to this part of my life. That's kind of how we talk about it. The trouble is that's not how the New Testament talks about it. In the New Testament... We come again and again and again and find that grace is not a thing distinct from Jesus. Grace is not this thing, a substance that you can just like amass or run out of so that you need more of it. It's not this thing that it's not an equity. It's not, it's not a resource. It's not stored in a closet somewhere. It's not any of that in the New Testament and especially in the first chapter of John, grace is not a thing to get. It's a person to know. Bottom line, grace is not a thing to get. Grace is a person to know, and his name is Jesus. So John tells us about Jesus, because Jesus, put it this way, Jesus is more important than grace. <laughs> Bit of a false dichotomy, I admit that, but you get the point. If we focus on grace to the neglect of Jesus, we've not understood grace. And so John tells us about Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus was present in the beginning. And not only was he present in the beginning, he is God's agent in creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. All things came into being through Him. Everything you see, nothing has been made that was not made through Him. And He's not only with God, He is God. There's this mysterious union between God and the Word, the Father and the Son, and yet there is distinction. One is a Father and one is a Son. It's mysterious, it's stunning, it's striking, it's beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. And God, Father, Son, and as we find Holy Spirit, 
together create a world and organize it and fill it with beauty and glory and plants and trees and water and forests and you, human beings, made in God's image. And God in His wisdom, the Word, endows us with His image and His character and trusts us with His reputation and the world is And very quickly, we betray the responsibility, don't we? And darkness floods God's creation. But God is not through with us, is he? Thanks be to God. John tells us that the light, verse 5, shines in the darkness. The light illumines a world that stands in rebellion to God. The light illumines a world that is committed to darkness, that loves darkness, that runs from the light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not able to overcome it. You've probably gone into a room that's dark and tripped on something before. Because you need to get to the light switch. (laughs) Because if you can just get a little bit of light, you'll begin to see what's around. It doesn't take much light. Light always overcomes darkness. And John tells us that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the light that shines into the world. Now he talks about Jesus in certain ways. And in multiple places he associates the language of grace with the presence of Jesus. So we're going to skip down to verse 14, and then we're going to back up a little bit. So kind of, if you have a Bible, keep it open. We're going to kind of piece this together and do the best we can. So we jump down to verse 14. We're going to talk about John in just a minute, John the Baptist. But in verse 14, we get more about Jesus. And we're told, the Word became flesh and lived among us, right? So so God, the Word, He speaks. He brings the world into creation. But he doesn't stay there. He becomes flesh. And so we hear about the incarnation. Christmas will be here in a few months ago. We'll celebrate the birth of Jesus. This is John's Christmas story. The Word became flesh. This is Bethlehem, shepherds, all that wrapped up into a theological articulation of the significance of God becoming human in Jesus. So the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory... Glory as of a Father's only Son. So you have God-Word language at the beginning. You have Father-Son language here. It's all trying to give us this full-orbed picture of the inner life of the triune God. Glory as a Father's only Son. And here's what we get. Full of grace and truth. So immediately, we don't get, here's Jesus and He gives grace. We get, here's Jesus, and He is grace. It's not, here's Jesus, and you can get some grace from Him. It's, here's Jesus, and He's full of it. Grace, that is. He continues with the same kind of language in verse 16. From His fullness, we have all received grace, and not just grace, grace upon grace. It's just 
It's more than you can imagine. Like, I'd be happy with some grace. And Jesus comes with grace upon grace. It's, it's abundance. And it reminds me, Romans 5, when the Apostle Paul talks about grace and abundance, not just abundance, but superabundance. It says where sin spread, grace superabounds. And John's got that same idea where the darkness blankets the earth, the light of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, not separate from Him, illumines the world. Jesus doesn't come with grace for us. Jesus comes as grace for us. His body, His incarnation, He is the presence of the living God. That's what that tabernacling language means as he lived among us the word became flesh and lived among us if you have your bible open you may see a translation that says he tabernacled among us it's pulling all the way back to exodus for this one you got to know your old testament to be able to mine the riches of this because in exodus god brings his people out of egypt in power brings them to the foot of mount sinai gives them his covenant says you're going to be my people i'm going to be your god here's what our relationship is going to look like and here's the crucial piece. You need to build a tent, and here's the instructions for the tent. And if you missed any of that, we'll repeat it all. You read through Exodus, you literally get all the tabernacle tent instructions twice. Because God tells them, and then they do it, and we hear it twice. It tells you how important it was. And at the end of it, God's glory, His presence, enters the tent. Wherever the Hebrew people go, the glory of God goes with them. His presence, His life. And occasionally they try to strike out on their own, and it goes very badly. And it gets to the point where Moses at times says, if you don't go, we don't want to go. Because they're coming to realize, even if it's just a little bit, that grace isn't a thing to get, it's a person to know, and it comes in God's presence. It is there in God's presence. So you get this tent. The tent is in the middle of the camp. And God lives in the tent. And the people live in their tents around God's tent. They're literally like camping with God. And later on, they settle in Jerusalem and they build a temple. And the glory moves into the temple. And again, there's this image of God dwelling with His people. He's not off. He's not upstairs. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not distant. He's not like a pen pal. He's not shooting prayers off to heaven and all that sort of thing. He lives in the city with them. When you go into the temple, you're going into God's space. When you go into the temple, you're going into heaven. That's where God lives. That's why Solomon says when he dedicates the temple, when I turn toward heaven and pray to this in, towards this place, the temple. Because for Solomon, heaven isn't like God's not living out in the wild blue yonder somewhere. He lives in the temple. His presence dwells there. It's the place in beauty where heaven and earth overlap and interlock, where human beings have fellowship with God. And John says, all of that tabernacle, temple, everything that it meant, everything that it meant about God dwelling in the midst of the camp of His people, about God making His home in the city where His people lived, His presence going with them, whether it was battle, whether it was prosperity, whatever it is, all of that is gathered up, swirled together, integrated, and 
present in Jesus. All of it. Everything that is God the Creator is present in Jesus. He makes the Father known. Why? Because God isn't here to just sort of give us stuff. Here's some grace. Leave me alone. Here's some grace. Are you sad? Is this enough? God is here to give Himself. And He does it in Jesus. And John wants us to leave understanding clearly that grace is not something that we get. It is a person we know and the name of that person is Jesus. He makes Himself known to us. Jesus does not come to dispense grace from God. He reveals God's life and character and being in His body and that revelation itself is grace. There is no grace outside of Jesus. Grace, we're going to define it, is the word that describes God's giving of Himself in Christ and the Spirit to us. It's not a thing He gives, it's the gift of Himself. Grace is the gift of God's self. To, uh, to you and to me. So I've, I've, I've tried to get more careful about my language lately. Because the way we talk really reflects the way we think. I had one of those professors in college who helped me greatly. And he was, he was the guy who would come in the room and said, like, don't, be, don't say, I can think it, but I can't say it. <laughs> you ever have a professor like that? Or someone? And you're like, maybe you're thinking, like, I've got the ideas, but I can't quite articulate it. I've got it in my head, but I can't write it down. And he, he recognized that our thoughts and our speech, our thoughts and the way we write are deeply connected. And if we speak something, it reflects the way we think about it. And so I've been very conscious lately about trying to speak about grace the way the Bible speaks about it, accurately. And so I'm a little less likely to say, you know, God, I need grace in this situation, and I'm more likely to say, God, I need you. <laughs> Graciously. The fullness of your grace now in this sickness. In this conflict with this person in my family. I need your presence to persevere in this time of pain and struggle. I need your life-giving presence in this moment. Because grace isn't something we get from God. It is God's presence, His self-giving love in, to, for us. It is relational, not transactional. That's what this is about, isn't it? John wants us to see that God is not here to engage in some heavenly transaction. He is here to relate to us. To be known by us and to know us. So there's a focus change, isn't there? Jesus is how the invisible God becomes visible. Jesus is how the invisible God relates to us in a body, in a human body. Get this movement from any sort of abstract conception of God to a relational, embodied person 
who relates to us. And John wants us to see that we have this in Jesus, and this is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is where the project's been going. God's self-giving love. Now, in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, if you're new to it, this may be kind of some fresh ideas. If you've been around for a few years, maybe you've heard some of this. I find that even though we've heard some of it, we're not always clear on it. So let's just all kind of start from square one together. We talk about three, oftentimes, I don't like this, I don't like talking about it this way, but we do it. We talk about three types of grace. Anybody ever hear the three types of grace? No, really, anybody ever hear the three types? I got three of you, all right. We've heard of these three types of grace. And the first one we call, we struggle with this one because the, for some reason they decided to hold on to a Latin word. Because we're all really meshed in that, aren't we? But the word is provenient, which comes from a couple of Latin words. It just means to come before. So I've decided it's probably more helpful instead of saying provenient, because you say that every day, don't you? Preceding grace. It comes ahead of time. First grace. I'm calling this sermon first grace, because it's about the initiation of God. His initiating relationship with us. He shows up first. He initiates, we respond. So we've got this initial, we're going to deconstruct the type language in a minute, but this initial type, expression, category of grace. We have that for a little while, and then we get to talking about, everybody remember the second one? We talk about justifying grace. And this is the grace that we say comes at the moment of our conversion. Like, I don't know Jesus. He's drawing me to himself through that preceding grace, but at the moment of conversion, I come to know him. I feel my sins forgiven. This is what happened to John Wesley on that day where he went to a gathering on Aldersgate Street, 1738. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt my sins forgiven, that he loved me, even me. He said, I trusted in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. Up until that point, Wesley was kind of, I trust in Christ and my missionary activity. I trust in Christ and my works of mercy. I trust in Christ and whatever it is I'm doing. But at that moment, when he met Jesus in this heartwarming, life-giving, freeing way, he says, I trusted Christ in Christ alone. And we call that moment justifying grace, where we go from condemned to justified, from, for, like from, from strangers to God to children of God. That's what John's getting at when he says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives power to become what? Children of God. That implies that we start out as what? Not children. <laughs> like if you can become something, you weren't that to begin with, were you? A little bit discouraging, a little bit disconcerting and kind of depressing to think we come into the world not children of God, but Jesus comes to bring us into God's family. And that moment, that moment where there's a, where there's a transition, we call that justifying grace. A lot of things happen, but that's what we call that moment. And then after that, we talk about what? I see a few mouths, you know, like you're, you're, you're beginning to realize, yes, it's okay to speak in church. And it is. It doesn't have to be a monologue. There's no microphone on you. They won't hear you on the World Wide Web. Sanctifying grace. I saw a few of you say that. Good. 
And that's this work of Christ after our conversion, after the new birth, after our justification, after we become children of God. It's the work of Christ to continually reproduce His character in us. To take the dark places and fill them with light. To take the broken places and heal them. To take the rebellious places and bring them into His good purposes. So we talk about these, these three types. We'll just stick with preceding since it's not Latin. Okay, deal? You good with that? Preceding grace, justifying grace, not guilty, your sins are forgiven, first that moment, and then this long period of time for the rest of our lives where he produces his holy character, sanctifying grace. That's all that means. Now here's the thing. I stood in seminary classrooms and said this and had preachers be surprised. I said to my colleagues, I've been surprised. I've had Wesley scholars a little bit taken aback, but I really want to insist on this. Proceeding grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace are not three different types of grace. Bear with me. There's, because grace is not a thing to get, it's a person to know. You don't get different types of it. There's only one grace, and his name is Jesus. Amen? He relates to us in different ways at different periods of his saving work in our lives. But he doesn't start out and say, hey, I don't know you, so I'm going to do some prevenient preceding grace in your life. But you're getting really close to getting saved, so I'm going to stop doing that kind of grace. Go back to my closet over here, get this other kind of justifying grace. Bring that back to your life and give you some justifying grace. And then once you get converted, I'll put a pause on the... We're done with justifying grace, obviously. So I'm going to go back to my grace vault, get some sanctifying grace, and we'll do that the rest of your life. That's a caricature, but it makes the point. We're not talking about different types of grace. We're talking about seasons in our lives. We're talking about periods of time in which Jesus is at work in our life in different ways. But in every moment, it's not something he's doing separate from himself it is his self-giving, revelation, power, work, kindness, grace, upon grace. So preceding grace is Jesus giving himself in such a way as to draw us to himself. Talk more about that in just a minute. It's not a thing separate from him. It's him saying, come to me. I love you. I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to be my brothers and sisters. Come. We're not there yet. But it's the drawing. It's the working. It's the... This is crucial, actually. Children's Sunday school teachers. Where are you? I know there's at least a couple of you. Children's Sunday school teachers. So much of what you do is in this season, isn't it? Like we're trying to help... Our babies <laughs> meet Jesus. And so the hours that you put into Bible study and lessons and crafts and illustrations and all the things that you do are part of the way that Jesus woos people, draws the children to Himself. Jesus said, let the little children come to Me. They're not to Him yet, are they? But we're bringing them and He's working through His church Parents, when you are in this room or when you are at home and your children see you loving Jesus, that's provenient grace. When you, like, they will love what you love. Make no mistake, whatever you love, whether it's college football or the gospel, your children will love it as much as you do, maybe more. 
Just remember that on Saturdays in the fall and Sundays. They will love what we love. If you love the Bible in front of your children whom you also love, they will love the Bible. If you love Jesus in front of your children whom you also love, they will love Jesus. That's what it means to train up a child in the way he should go. But all of that, right? Because we're trying to bring him to the place where they surrender to him, where they, where they trust him, where their hearts are warmed, where in a moment they find themselves children of God. So Sunday school teachers, parents, grandparents, like all of that, right? Is Jesus is using you to give himself to them. When you talk about how the Lord has worked in your life to people that you know who don't know Jesus, Jesus is using you as an instrument to give himself to those people. You're not responsible for their response, but you want to be available when he wants to use you to give himself, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> All that is preceding grace. It's not a different thing, it's a different season. And the focus isn't on what you get, it's on who you know and coming to know Jesus. So that's season number one. Talk a little bit more about it in a minute, but we need to map it on the big picture. We're tracking okay. Don't want to be too technical. We're just going to do the best we can to be clear. That second step on the pathway, right? Not a different thing, but another step on the same journey into Jesus' fullness. We call it justifying grace, right? Because before this, we're guilty and condemned because we're sinners. And when Jesus works in our lives to justify us, he does a lot of things. He joins us to himself so that what's true of him becomes true of us. And he is a child of God. And if we've been joined to him, we become children of God. That's what, we're, that's, like, that's what we just read together. He forgives us, and we feel that for like, I feel my sins forgiven, as Wesley said. He says you're in the right, like the court, the divine court has found in your favor. That's what justified means. All that happens in a moment. We don't always remember the specific moment. Sometimes we look back and we find he, he met me there. Some of us have a very distinct memory of that moment. It works out a little differently for different people. But again, it's not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not something out of the grace closet in heaven. It's just Jesus saying, you're mine. You belong to me. And if you belong to me, your sins are forgiven. And if you belong to me, you're a child of my Father. It's not a thing. It's a person who unites us to himself. And then we've got that third season step on the path sanctification because coming to Jesus is the first step not the last step sometimes we treat it like it's the last step we do to our to to people's detriment like if we think just come on down and sign the card and join the church and get baptized and you're good to go forever we are misleading people because that is the beginning of the work of God in their life as his children. And children are supposed to what? Grow up into maturity. Like none of us take our babies 
and try to keep them as babies, right? We feed them and we teach them because we want them to become mature people. And so children of God, they get born into the family of God. But we want them to grow into mature believers who love Jesus and walk with Him. And that sanctifying grace, that's what that's about. And it's not, again, it's not a thing. It's not out of the the grace closet. It's not a substance. You don't just, hey, here's some sanctifying grace. Have fun with that. It's Jesus saying, I've drawn you to myself. I've united you to myself. Now I'm going to bring you so deeply into my life, it will transform every aspect of your being. Again, what I'm trying to do, and I hope it's clear, is relate all of these seasons to Jesus. It's not, hey, here's grace type number one. Good, glad to have that. We're done. Grace type number two, success, mission accomplished. Grace type number three, no. Jesus draws me to himself, unites me to himself, and brings me deeper and deeper and deeper into his life. That's why John talks about fullness of grace. Not beside Jesus, but through Jesus. With all that we've just talked about, let me read this one more time. The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The Son is full of grace. He doesn't dispense it. He is it. It's His character. It's His being. Verse 16, From His fullness we have received grace upon grace. Right When He unites us to Himself, when He gives us His fullness... He holds nothing back from you. Like, let that settle in for a second. The Creator of all things who speaks and the Milky Way comes into existence. The Creator of all things who speaks and you get oaks and pines and crepe myrtles and all these different kinds of things that I don't even know. He speaks and you get spiders and scorpions, and snakes, and centipedes. I don't know why he made those things, but he did. He speaks, and you get giraffes, and zebras, and gazelles. He speaks, and you get Pluto. He speaks, and you get things out there, light years away, that we have not yet discovered. He knows about them, and he takes pleasure in them. And we one day will too. Have you taken a moment to think about that God is the one who has made a universe filled with beauty and there's so much of it that only He knows about because we haven't gotten there yet. That's a lot of God. Big God. Infinite in glory, beauty, majesty, wisdom, power, and kindness and love. And that God who exceeds the bounds of the universe, who exceeds the bounds of our imagination, that God gives His fullness to you. Let that sink in. Even as I try to find words to communicate that reality, they feel inadequate. That God takes His fullness and puts it in Jesus and says, here. 
Grace isn't something you get from him. It's his self-giving reality. He's given us his fullness in Jesus. God, the only Son, makes him known and makes us children. So let's talk a little bit more about that first stage. Can we call them stages of grace, maybe instead of types of grace? Let's talk about that first stage. John talks about it. There's two different aspects of it you need to kind of begin to wrestle with. I almost said understand, but let's just talk about wrestling with it. How about that? One of them is universal and objective. The other is personal and subjective. So let's do them in order. Number one, God gives himself in a way that is universal to everyone and objective. Where is that in the text of Scripture? Take a look with me at verse 8. Talking about John the Baptist, he himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. We all know the light is Jesus. Amen? Right? We're good? Jesus is the light. The true light, verse 9, which enlightens who? Everyone was coming into the world. So whatever happens when Jesus shows up, and I really wish John had given us some more detail, because I'm kind of, when it comes to these theological things, I like details. I'm re- I mean, please, give me as many details as you possibly can. He doesn't give me a lot of details, and I don't appreciate that. I would really love more details. But what he does say is he says there's this reality that when Jesus shows up in a dark world, he is the light that illumines who? Everyone. All people. That's why I say it is objective and universal. That does not mean everyone gets to that place of justification. He's already said there's a group who receive power to become children. That's that second stage in the journey we're talking about. This is the initial stage. Jesus shows up and His incarnation, His birth, His presence creates a fundamental, objective, universal change in the world. Like when Jesus shows up, it's not a one event that happens off in Bethlehem without implications. It has implications that are universal. Things are different when Jesus is born. Things are different when He comes out of the tomb on Easter morning. New creation is launched, and that has a universal impact. I don't understand it. I don't know how it works. I can't answer all the questions. But we are told that the light that Jesus brings illumines everyone. Now, there are some people who don't appreciate the language of of provenient grace, and I get the arguments. And they say, well, this is illumination, but we're not talking about salvation. And I think the problem with that is, if you read through the Gospel of John, is that the language of light is always aimed at faith and becoming a part of God's family. So there's a couple of different places in the Gospel of John where this is helpful. First of all, in John chapter 3, verse 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So there's that light language. Sounds a lot like chapter 1, doesn't it? Light in the world, Jesus. Light has come into the world. People love darkness because of light. I'm sorry, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be expressed. But those who do what is true come to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And then in verse 26, verse 25 and 26, sorry, I'm all over the place here. You have this moment where Jesus is clear. Like the light has come into the world, and that creates a new situation. And the goal of that light is to move people from darkness into the light. It's not something separate from salvation. It's not just a general illumination about God's something. It's very specific, and it's aimed. It is aimed at faith. It is aimed at the work that God wants to do. The light has come into the world so that it may be clearly seen. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, John came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. Why did he testify to the light? So that people could what? Have faith in the light. Why did he testify to the coming of Jesus? So that people could trust Jesus and be joined to him. Whatever illumination that Jesus brings is about salvation. It's not a separate category. Whatever illumination that Jesus brings is aimed at our salvation. It's not a different thing. In chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, John's Gospel, just doing a little correlation here. Jesus is engaged in some conversation with the crowd. And he says to them, the light is with you for a little longer, talking about himself, verse 35. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you don't know where you're going while you have the light. But believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. So you see that movement. The light has come into the world. The appropriate response to the light is trust and belief. And the consequence of that is what? Becoming children of God. So whatever light means... It's part of the path to salvation. It's not a different thing. So Jesus somehow, mysteriously and wisely, illumines everyone. Some people remain in darkness. Other people walk in the light and become a part of the family of God. What does this look like? A couple more kind of illustrative texts. One is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says to the Thessalonians, For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that He's chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I showed up in Thessalonica, started preaching the gospel, the word. When I preached the word, it wasn't a typical kind of like news report or, hey, did you catch the game last night? Those are regular conversations. This is a different kind of conversation. It comes with power. It comes with the Holy Spirit. And it comes with conviction. And Paul is recognizing this reality that when the gospel is preached, right? So you've got this universal change. And then you have this personal and subjective reality that when we just talk about Jesus with individuals, the Holy Spirit works powerfully to convict of sin. And draw them to Jesus. They're not Christians yet, right? He just showed up. They're not justified. They're not born again. They don't even know Paul. But he's out there talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit as it works. So you've got at one level this universal, the light illumines everybody. Thanks be to God. And then you've got this 
personal subjective. When Paul shows up in a town and starts talking about Jesus, things start to happen. The Spirit goes to work, individually, subjectively, drawing people to Christ. There's one more passage to see how this kind of plays out a bit. And it's Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, Peter and the other disciples get filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do they do? Peter starts preaching. And he preaches about Jesus. He talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He talks about the universal lordship of Jesus. And we are told in verse 37, after the sermon gets through, when they heard this, so there's people listening, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? They're not converted yet, are they? They're under conviction. When Luke says they've been cut to the heart, something supernatural is happening. Sounds a lot like Paul. When we preached, the Holy Spirit worked with power to produce conviction. So Paul, you've got kind of just an account. And with Acts, we have a narrative. But it's the same reality. They heard the gospel They were cut to the heart. They didn't just go, you know, I'm going to think about this for a little while and kind of reflect on it and I'll weigh the options. No, the Spirit of God worked in their lives when the gospel is preached. That's grace that comes before conversion, grace that comes before new birth, grace that comes before justification. The Spirit works in their lives. They're cut to the heart and they ask, like, what do we do? (laughs) Because they don't know. But they're What little bit of light they have, they're responding. And so Peter instructs them, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. So that your sins may be forgiven. We're still in that initial stage, aren't we? But Jesus is giving himself through the preaching of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and drawing them in. And what happens? They get baptized. They join the covenant. They confess, they trust Jesus, and they are added to the number of the children of God. What I want you to see, and this is crucial, we're talking about grace. Now, grace isn't something we get, it's a person we know. This is Jesus who works both universally and particularly to give himself. Whatever giving of himself he gives to you, Respond. Nobody initiates anything with Jesus. No one. He always comes first. That's why John the Baptist shows up, doesn't it? Isn't it? John chapter 1. He prepares the way. That's provenient grace. He precedes Jesus. There's a light coming. There's somebody coming. The one is coming. He's greater than I am. We get this again and again and again. That God initiates. He initiates. We don't initiate. He initiates. We respond. And what are we responding to? Not some substance, but Him. His life, His person, His being, His love, His perfect love for us. It's a stunning thing, brothers and sisters, that God, is, God isn't, He's not inviting us to find out what we can get from Him. 
Sometimes I think we kind of approach God that way, don't we? Very transactionally. You know, if I go to church, will God give me a good life? You know, if I believe in Jesus, will things work out well for me? You don't have to do this long to know that they won't necessarily. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> it's, not out, it's not about what we can get from Him. It's about union with Him. It's not about receiving something from Him. It's about the giving of Himself in His fullness. And he shows up in us, to us, before we are even aware of his existence. He is at work, drawing us to himself, illumining us. Whether it's a parent reading a Bible story before bed, praying in the morning, talking about a sermon on Sunday afternoon after, at lunchtime, children's church, children's Sunday school, adult Sunday school, all of these different ways where the gospel is communicated. Jesus is at work to give himself in his fullness. The question is, the question is, do you want his fullness? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.